I said, we've got to have a full-blooded judicial inquiry into this issue. I'm grateful to the Home Secretary for listening to what we had to say when we met him the first time. And we hope, at the end of the day, we'll all be smiling. Stephen Lawrence's family know his killers may never be brought to justice, but they hope the inquiry ensures a case like his never happens again. Arriving with family members, the men were met by a 200-strong hostile crowd. The results of the McPherson report went to the heart of policing, calling the Metropolitan Force institutionally racist, highlighting multiple mistakes and lack of leadership. It was devastating. I'm Stephen Wright, and this is the Mail Plus True Crime series, Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain. Episode 3, Institutionally Racist. On the morning of the 14th of February 1997, the Daily Mail accused five men of the murder of Stephen Lawrence. At the time, none of the men named had been convicted of the murder. In fact, only two men have ever been convicted over Stephen's killing, and police have never found sufficient evidence to bring anyone else to trial. Nonetheless, it was a headline which couldn't be ignored. The Mail's front-page splash names five unconvicted men, publishing their pictures and branding them as murderers. In an editorial, the paper says, when the judicial system has failed so lamentably to deal with the killers of Stephen Lawrence, extraordinary measures are demanded. The unprecedented front page caused a sensation in the media, the legal world and in politics. The reaction to the front page was strong and not always positive. The male have gone a step too far. The implication is that papers can become judge and jury and that's a very dangerous step to take. Eddie Young, in his role as legal advisor to the paper, was consulted by the editor, Paul Dacre, over his decision to publish the front page. Eddie, how did you feel about the criticism levelled at the paper? I was confident in what I'd done. Any criticism afterwards didn't worry me. I mean, I was obviously concerned when a Lord Justice had said these were its contempt of court, but I was convinced it wasn't. And... I never heard from any lawyer with any claim whatsoever. I did, in fact, and this is probably not generally known, but I did, in fact, get a call from a lawyer I know. And he said, what would I think if he took up the cudgels on their behalf? So I said, well, take up the cudgels on their behalf if you want to. I didn't say, no, don't do that. But I'm telling you, you might be, you might be wasting your time, but we've got loads of evidence here. I've never heard from him again. But despite your advice to the editor that the front page wouldn't break the law there were still accusations of contempt of court, weren't there? It was an uncertain time. There was some sort of inquiry by the Attorney-General into whether this constituted a contempt of court. That inquiry lasted about two weeks before they came to the conclusion, the same conclusions I had, that there was no contempt of court. Despite the criticism, others praised the mail for taking a stand. Nazir Afsal was a senior lawyer at the Crown Prosecution Service at the time. That was a pivotal moment in how the media had the courage in that case and the bravery of responding and tapping into the zeitgeist, tapping into what the community, society, the British public felt about something. As the debate raged over the front page, I was called into the office of my boss, 
John Stiefel. Although there had been some criticism of the editor Paul Dacre's decision to run the murderer's headline, the feeling at the top was that things appeared to be going well. John said, We want to keep this going. We're launching a Justice for Stephen campaign. We discussed some ideas on how to take things forward, how we could hold the police to account and help the Lawrences get justice. Pressure was mounting on the Met. David Michael was a detective inspector in the force, as well as a founder member of the Black Police Association. I made a statement to the New Nation newspaper saying that I was supporting the Lawrence family in their quest for a public inquiry into how the Metropolitan Police were managing the Mm. investigation. As the Justice for Stephen campaign swung into action, the case was already being discussed in the corridors of Parliament. I was concerned about the Lawrence case well before the general election. In early 1997, Jack Straw was Shadow Home Secretary in Tony Blair's cabinet-in-waiting. I'd met the Lawrence family and they had pressed me to commit to an inquiry. They were angry, uh, as I would be in that situation, if it had been my son who'd been murdered. They were profoundly upset and disturbed that such an obvious injustice. Here was their son, completely innocent of anything. He was minding his own business at a bus stop, for Lord's sake gets murdered by five thugs. And he was murdered not because of anything he'd done or anything he could control, but he was murdered because of the colour of his skin. Of course, I understood that. And I wanted to produce some justice for them. Obviously, the matter was heightened in my mind by the Daily Mail's headline in mid-February. So in my own mind, I wanted to have an inquiry, but I didn't want to say anything publicly about this for two reasons. One is I wanted to hear what the officials in the Home Office had to say, assuming I became Home Secretary, in case there was some information of which I'd not been aware and was not, could not be aware until I became uh, Secretary of State. The second was that I didn't want this to become a political issue with people taking sides on it, because as far as I was concerned, this wasn't a party political issue at all, even though I was critical of the fact that my predecessor, Michael Howard, had not moved on an inquiry. In May 1997, Labour won the general election and Mr Straw was able to put his plan into action. Tony Blair's new Labour announced a landslide victory in the general election. And we will govern for the whole of this nation, every single part of it. So he came into office and... I'd already said to the permanent secretary of the Home Office that I was anxious to establish uh, an inquiry. So the officials knew that when I arrived. Quite quickly, papers were produced talking about the form of inquiry. They didn't produce any information which dissuaded me from having an inquiry. But what did happen was that they were suggesting I should have an inquiry into race relations. I mean, basically go round the issue rather than actually an inquiry which forensically focused on what had happened and critically what had not happened in respect of the investigation into this terrible murder, which after all taken place at that stage four years before. I knocked them back and said, no, I'm sorry. What that suggested to me was that the Home Office felt defensive about the issue. I said, we've got to have an inquiry, a full-blooded 
judicial inquiry into this issue. Did you speak to Tony Blair about your plan to hold an inquiry? Yes, I did. Tony was also on board for this. He was anxious, however, as, as indeed I was, that if possible, I should gain the agreement of Sir Paul Condon to the terms of reference. Sir Paul Condon was the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police and had been in post since 1993, the year of Stephen's murder. The police weren't all that forthcoming early on and were very defensive. And then suddenly they realised that they needed to change and they did change. You say that Scotland Yard was initially reluctant to participate in the inquiry. Were you concerned about that? I was profoundly disturbed by the failure of the police investigation that was taking place. And I had suspicions that there must have been somebody relatively senior in the CID covering that part of London, who for some reason or other was anxious that the inquiry should not be as thorough as it should and could have been. After all, the police had a very good idea who the suspects were from early on. I mean, these five thugs were well known in the area and one came from an extremely notorious criminal family. In late July 97, it emerged that Mr Straw was set to announce a public inquiry into Stephen's murder. For my newspaper, it was a vindication of the murderer's front page. The landmark public inquiry would cover the circumstances surrounding the murder, the initial police investigation, the Crown Prosecution Service's decision not to bring criminal charges, the alleged intimidation of witnesses and the wider issue of racially motivated crime. It's under an experienced judge of the High Court, backed by a very experienced independent panel, and this inquiry will have full powers to compel the attendance of witnesses to give evidence under oath, and if they fail to do so, to punish them as if it were a contempt of court. Stephen's dad, Neville Lawrence, welcomed the announcement. I'm grateful to the Home Secretary for listening to what we had to say when we met him the first time, and for granting our wishes. And we hope, at the end of the day, we'll all be smiling. As the public inquiry was announced, a separate, independent investigation into the Lawrence case by Kent Police, overseen by the Police Complaints Authority, was drawing to a conclusion. There were whispers, even then, that the Kent inquiry would be withering of the initial merge investigation. But the Met's high command still believed there was nothing seriously wrong with it. I finally had all the ducks in the row, right at the very end of July 1997. But then there were further complications because the family raised objection to Sir William McPherson being the chairman. He'd been in the territorial SAS. And, and I had to say to them, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I've done what you wanted. I've got the terms of reference. It is a judicial inquiry with the full powers of a judicial inquiry. Mm. Got a senior judge. What you can't do is negotiate with me about who sits on it. Mr Straw went ahead with the appointment of ex-High Court Judge Sir William McPherson as Inquiry Chairman. He also had to select panel members from a range of backgrounds to act as Sir William's advisers. There was a kind of process, as you can imagine, of discussion about this. I think I knew John Sempton you a bit, and it seemed to me that he ticked a lot of boxes. Somebody who was working in 
in London at the time in a really difficult diocese in Stepney who was black. And that seemed to me to be really important. In Richard Stone, you had somebody who was Jewish, but who had done great interfaith work with both the Muslim and the Christian faith communities. And Tom Cook, recently retired, very senior police officer who had lots and lots of experience about, as it were, what standards should be followed by the police. Shortly after Mr Straw had announced the public inquiry, I had lunch with the president of the Police Superintendents Association, Brian McKenzie. We discussed the Lawrence case and whether the Met could ever get justice for Stephen when three of the then five prime suspects had been cleared of murder. The double jeopardy law, which prevented someone cleared of murder being tried again, was a major obstacle. Then I recalled a court case I had covered in the Netherlands in 1996 when a British man I had dubbed a serial widower was cleared of murdering his latest British wife. But outside court, a Dutch detective told me the case was not over, that under their laws, the prosecution could appeal against Kevin Sweeney's acquittal if new evidence emerged. Years later it did, and Sweeney was belatedly convicted of murdering Suzanne Davies. When we had lunch back in 1997, Brian McKenzie also had concerns about the double jeopardy law and agreed to mention the Lawrence case in his annual conference speech in September that year. At a press conference after Brian's addressed delegates, I challenged Mr Straw about the calls for a change in the law. He was dismissive of the idea. But Brian, a pioneering leader of the Superintendents Association, vowed to continue his fight for a change in the law. And I made sure the Mail, which wrote an editorial on the issue, was behind him and his association. Five months after Mr Straw announced the setting up of the McPherson inquiry, the Police Complaints Authority's report into the Lawrence case, carried out by Kent Police, was finally released. It was damning and was the first conclusive proof that Stephen had been failed by the Met. It found significant weaknesses, omissions and lost opportunities in the police's handling of the investigation but it found no evidence of racism. Despite this, it was a major blow to the confidence of Britain's biggest force, which at this point still maintained its officers had conducted a thorough investigation. On the day the Watchdog report was released, I was invited to conduct an exclusive interview with Met Chief Sir Paul Condon in his office on the eighth floor of New Scotland Yard. Throughout our meeting, he repeatedly shook his head in disbelief as he read the conclusions of the report. Sir Paul was a proud Met man. What I witnessed that afternoon in his private office was a crestfallen leader of a great police force. It was an omen of much worse things to come for him and those he led. The Stephen Lawrence public inquiry began in March 1998. 
Stephen Lawrence's family know his killers may never be brought to justice, but they hope the inquiry ensures a case like his never happens again. Outside, a video link-up relayed the proceedings to those who couldn't get into the hearings. Public emotions were running high as the inquiry started in South London. It had been eight months since Mr Straw set up the probe, and the Lawrences and their supporters remained concerned about how robust it would be. It was not long before their doubts were allayed. In a blistering opening statement, the lawyer appointed by the government to lead the public inquiry said police ignored crucial evidence that could have led to Stephen's killers within 24 hours. Edmund Lawson exposed a devastating catalogue of failures and demolished claims that officers were hampered by a so-called wall of silence from frightened witnesses. Almost from the start, it was a steady drip of bad press for the Met. I hadn't been any doubt that there'd been a need for the inquiry, but as the evidence came out, it was being confirmed almost every day that it was just as well I hadn't established an inquiry because the situation was simply even worse than I'd anticipated. The inquiry heard that police were given the names of the five prime suspects within hours of the attack on 18-year-old Stephen, yet did not arrest them for a fortnight. It was also told that detectives failed to react to countless other tip-offs identifying the gang. Three of the 26 informants were police officers and that forensic investigations had been mishandled. Inspector Stephen Groves was the man in charge of the initial response to Stephen's death. Today he admitted he had no existing records from the night of the murder. There were also allegations that police were guilty of crass failure in their surveillance of the suspected killers. One police photographer did not report that he had spotted a suspect leaving home carrying clothing, possibly bloodstained, in a bin bag. As the public inquiry into the death of Stephen Lawrence has progressed, the police investigation has been increasingly condemned. Two weeks ago, Detective Superintendent Brian Whedon admitted he failed to understand a basic premise of criminal law. That failure led to a delay before anyone was arrested for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. The inquiry had been running for three months when the five suspects named by the Daily Mail arrived to give evidence. It was set to be the blockbuster day of the inquiry. Arriving with family members, the men were met by a 200-strong, hostile crowd. If they were bothered by the shouts of abuse, there was little sign of it as they walked to the London offices where the public inquiry is being held. Jamie Aikwood even managed to mock the onlookers with a kiss. Once the inquiry began, the tension turned to disbelief as the five men arrogantly dodged questions. Such is the emotion of this case, these men were never going to be able to leave quietly. As they strode out of the inquiry, the crowd erupted around them. One of the five men, David Norris, tried to retaliate. Pelted with missiles and punches, the five were rushed from the building. Police formed a cordon around the demonstrators, but couldn't stop the violence. As the men were bundled into a white van, the crowd turned on the police. Eventually, officers retreated. Around 100 people followed them up the road. Riot police were called, and for nearly half an hour, they and the demonstrators faced each other. It was absolutely extraordinary. Jack Straw was watching from the Home Office in mounting astonishment. 
you know, a picture does tell a thousand words. And the behavior of those thugs as they came away from the inquiry and started throwing punches at people just told you what kind of nasty individuals they were. Once again, the Lawrences and the British public were to be denied answers about what happened that night in 1993. But the inquiry continued. Public outrage was building as more and more evidence of the Met's failings came to light. And in October, Met Commissioner Sir Paul Condon appeared in front of the inquiry. Anger and hostility were in evidence at the public inquiry today as Sir Paul Condon arrived to try and salvage the battered image of his force. The Lawrence family questioned whether Sir Paul could continue in post. Here's their lawyer, Imran Khan, speaking at the time. Certainly what we hope is Sir Paul Condon to accept unequivocally that there is racism within Metropolitan Police and that the failure into the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation was as a result of racism, uh, incompetence and corruption. Sir Paul Condon did apologise to the Lawrences. In a statement that was frequently greeted with derision from the public gallery, the Commissioner set out his plans for an anti-racist police service. He personally apologised to Mr and Mrs Lawrence for failing to catch their son's killers. But he said he wanted to honour Stephen's memory with enduring reform and progress. But he refused to resign and the Lawrence family were no closer to getting justice for their son. So much had gone wrong in the police investigation but nobody in the force had been held to account. As Stephen's mother, for five years, we still haven't been given justice. We still haven't been given justice. And now he, he publicly apologised, but he still hasn't brought Stephen's killers to justice, and they're still walking the streets. There was a lot of speculation at the time that Sir Paul Condon might not survive in post because of the damning evidence coming out of the inquiry. Mr Straw, as the person who was ultimately his boss, was it true that his job was on the line? It was never my instinct to dismiss people, except I mean, in very egregious cases. By this stage, he and the, and the Met as a whole had apologised for what had happened. And I knew that he was going to be leaving, and did leave, as I recall, later in 1999. So that was going to happen anyway. My instinct was not to make it worse. What point would have been achieved by that? Was there pressure from anyone else in government for him to go? I don't think so, is the answer. I mean, somebody may have done, but obviously it was my call in discussion with the Prime Minister. There's always demand in a situation like this to have somebody's head. I knew that Paul Condon was going to go. I knew that his whole period in office as Commissioner had been blighted by the inadequacy of the inquiry into this case, and it just hung round him and, of course, round the whole of Scotland Yard. They'd apologised. If it had been demanded by the inquiry, the inquiry had said, we don't think that Commissioner's behaviour is compatible with him continuing. Well, of course he would have had to go. I wouldn't have needed to tell him. He would have gone. But that wasn't the case. The McPherson report was published in February 1999. It made a number of damning conclusions about the Met's conduct, the main headline being that the force was institutionally racist. In the run-up to the release of the report, there had been a number of leaks to the media about its content, including to my own newspaper. The central conclusion that Scotland Yard was institutionally racist had been speculated upon for weeks. But when this was made official, it still came as a shock. The results of the McPherson report went to the heart of policing. 
calling the Metropolitan Force institutionally racist, highlighting multiple mistakes and lack of leadership. The findings of the inquiry were far worse than many people had expected. I suspect even the Lawrences were astonished because it wasn't just in this case or in the Met Police that Sir William McPherson found racism, but in the whole system. It was quite shocking, wasn't it? Of course it was, because this was about the whole system being on trial, how the police and the criminal justice system as a whole dealt with different people of different ethnicity and colour. Everybody should be treated the same before the law, but the truth is that, and there's still an element of this today, but it was worse 25 years ago, much worse, that if you were black or Asian, you got a worse deal. You were much more likely to be stopped and searched even if you were completely innocent than if you were white, and you were more likely to end up before the courts for similar behaviour to a white, and you're also more likely to be dealt with more severely. But worse too, what emerged in the Lawrence Inquiry was that if a young black man was found murdered, the instinctive reaction of the police then, not now, was to shrug their shoulders and think, okay, a black guy probably involved in drugs. Well, well, of course, we'll investigate this, but we won't spend a lot of time on it. And I'm pretty certain that's what happened. It's a shrug. If Stephen Lawrence had had the same name, the same qualifications, the same unblemished record, but had been white, they would have got the killers immediately. So what was your verdict at the time on the label of institutional racism in the Met? Well, I thought it was true. Absolutely clear it was. I mean, the, the report was stark in its conclusions. That arresting conclusion was made the more compelling because it came from Sir William McPherson. He said it with all his authority and experience, along with the other three colleagues of his. And they all came to the same conclusion. Very difficult to argue with it. David Michael of the Black Police Association had watched the inquiry from the public gallery. I wanted to see fair play for the Lawrence family. But as a veteran Metropolitan Police, it was painful for me to be sitting in that public inquiry, hearing the litany of incompetence and racist behaviour from my own colleagues. It was painful. Were you ashamed? I wasn't ashamed on my account, but as I said, it was painful. It was painful being a veteran metropolitan police officer. It was painful listening to the litany of incompetence from people so much more senior in rank to me. It was just painful for the whole of the metropolitan police. It was a very painful time. But unfortunately, that pain wears off far too quickly. The inquiry was hugely embarrassing for the Met, but some in the force felt it was unfair. A number of key figures in the Metropolitan Police Federation, which represented rank-and-file officers, were deeply unhappy with my reporting on the case. They felt that the Daily Mail, traditionally very supportive of the police, had become police haters. It resulted in some tense encounters. For me, these people were in denial about the Lawrence case. My newspaper had no preset agenda. We were fulfilling our responsibility of holding the powerful to account. At the same time, morale was plummeting across the ranks of the Met. It was devastating. 
Phil Flower was a superintendent in London's West End when the McPherson report was published. It caused a wide range of emotions, and I can remember when I briefed my officers, some of them were brought to tears because, for example, there were black officers there who were being challenged by their family and friends as to why they were part of this racist organisation. And there were officers there in mixed-race marriages and relationships who were experiencing the same thing. And it was very, very difficult for them. They were questioning whether they could continue to serve in the service that had been found wanting. The resistance to the label of institutional racism went all the way to the top of Scotland Yard. Here is Sir Paul Condon in an interview after the inquiry's findings were published. The only cautionary words that I offer to the inquiry, and they are only cautionary, are that if I said about the BBC or any other organisation, it's institutionally racist. I think common usage, people think that from top to bottom, people are acting out in a racist way throughout their working life. And, and I just don't, honestly don't believe that reflects the majority of the good men and women who, who work in London. But that's not denying racism. There are huge problems of racism in society. There are huge problems of racism in the police service and in the Met in particular. I asked David Michael what he thought of that that officers in the Met felt personally branded as racist by the report. Officers were not paying attention. Sir William is saying the system structures, processes and procedures of the Metropolitan Police and the officers were hearing every officer in the Met is a racist. So they were not listening. Despite the resistance in some quarters to the tag of institutional racism, the Met had no choice but to accept its bombshell findings. There is no doubt whatsoever that people were hanging their heads in shame and almost disbelief that we had been cast in this light. And there was a desperate search in our own culture and organisation amongst ourselves to see if there was more that we could do. Really tangible changes within what was a fairly intensive and short period of time were always going to be difficult to achieve, but I believe some of those did occur. Sir William's report heralded an historic race relations revolution. He accused the Met of racism, professional incompetence and bad leadership in their hunt for Stephen's killers. But the retired High Court judge widened his brief to encompass the race relations failure, he said, permeated every corner of society. He unveiled a string of planned changes to root out and prosecute racists in the police, public bodies and in the wider community. In response, Scotland Yard vowed to become more diverse, more reflective of the communities it policed and to deal more sensitively with the needs of people from minority communities, whether they be victims, witnesses of crime, or members of the public they had dealings with. David Michael had first-hand experience of the impact of the inquiry on the Met's handling of racism. I had an employment tribunal against the Metropolitan Police uh, on the grounds of racism, and my case was that I was getting differential treatment 
to my detriment when compared to white officers in terms of progression and development. The case was very challenging for the Metropolitan Police because, as I said, I was a highly regarded operational detective. And one of the reasons I brought that case wasn't... Yes, I had those experiences, but I wanted to say it, it needed somebody like me who was highly regarded um, operationally and professionally to say, look, if I am experiencing that, I'm a highly regarded detective and I am experiencing these things in the workplace every day, what chance does a young police constable or detective constable, what chance do they have? So I said it really has to be put on the records. In an organisation, you can be... You can be polite, you can draw things to attention of, and, and I did many times draw things to the attention of very senior officers as opposed to my, even, even try to reason with first line managers and nothing came of it. So eventually you have to say, well, if you won't deal with it internally, I have every right under the laws of England to seek redress. Just listening to what you said there brought back a conversation I had with a former colleague of yours around that time. It was someone I knew pretty well, the same rank as you, who said about your high-profile battle, David used to be a good bloke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does that surprise you? No, it, does, it doesn't surprise me. We would be cool, I would be cool if I just assimilated and literally pretended I was a white person. I would be cool with all white officers, junior, senior, mm. if I didn't actually say, well, actually, that isn't what defines me as a police officer, but I have a certain heritage. I was born in the Caribbean. My primary schooling was in the Caribbean. Mm. So I have a heritage and a history. Mm. And because I am a professional, dedicated British citizen in the Metropolitan Police, I don't have to put all of that to one side yeah. just to make my white colleagues happy yeah. that I have to be a shadow, I have to be a surrogate of my white colleagues. And that's what racism is, because you're a good bloke. Dave Michael's a good bloke. He can do the job, he can come out drinking and socialising with us, yeah. but his heritage, his history, his culture... We mustn't see or hear anything about it in the Metropolitan Police. Do you think the Met would have settled with you, as they did, if it wasn't for the McPherson inquiry? My employment tribunal lasted over four years, and I think people can draw their own conclusions. It was settled in the middle of part two of the Stephen Lawrence public inquiry. The McPherson inquiry threw the book at the Met over the Lawrence case and its failure over race and diversity issues. But it was a recommendation that attracted relatively little publicity at the time that turned out to be a pivotal moment in the Justice for Stephen campaign. Sir William's report recommended that consideration be given to scrapping the double jeopardy rule, which prevented a suspect being tried twice on the same charge. If this became law, it opened up the possibility that the likes of Gary Dobson could be tried again for Stephen's murder. 
next time on Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain. It's certainly the biggest investigation I've ever seen outside an anti-terrorist investigation. You're practising cutting someone there, aren't you? Yeah, I think, I think all teenagers go through that phase. One of your then senior colleagues said to me, our best hope of getting justice in this case is if one of the Lawrence suspects finds God. We had to reinvestigate just about everything and just seek the truth. When you start getting numbers of different fibres like that, you really do start getting strong evidence. We found, very much to our surprise, that there was a flake of blood. I remember looking at him and thinking, well, I've got to tell you, my old mate, it ain't going to be long now. You've been listening to Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain, with me, Stephen Wright. <laughs>